there's a really funny and kind of disturbing line in the file. Eventually, Ina will move to Vienna to be with Inter as his partner or his wife. It's just chilling. I was going to have a sleeper for a wife. I mean, it's just insane. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. Mark Baker featured in episode 9 where he told us about working in Czechoslovakia in the 1980s as a journalist for a small publishing company called Business International. He was the company's Czechoslovakia expert and with his Czech minder Arnold, he travelled to Prague and other cities to report on significant economic and political developments. In 2021, Mark published Čas Promien, Times of Changes. Written in Czech, it's a collection of stories about Central and Eastern Europe in the 1980s and the early 90s. Over the Christmas 2021 holidays, as he was visiting family in Ohio, he received a surprise email from a Czech academic. He was writing to Mark to say that he'd finished reading the book and that he'd liked it. But then he added cryptically that Mark might want to revise part of it for future editions, as he had found Mark's Czechoslovak secret police surveillance file. We hear about the plans the Czechoslovak secret police had for Mark and the secrets of Operation Ohan, a.k.a. Operation Fire. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. My name is David. I live in Virginia. I listen to Cold War Conversations whenever I can. It brings back a lot of good memories from my time in the service. Keep up the good work, Ian. Keep putting out all your great product. Thank you very much. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Mark Baker back for another Cold War Conversation. I was working as a journalist in, in the 1980s, and we were based in Vienna, and I was working for a small outfit called Business International uh, that was later um, acquired by The Economist Group uh, from the UK. And uh, it was our job to report on events in Eastern, Central and Eastern Europe from a business and economic perspective and to write about you know, what might be going on in trade, etc. I was hired there and brought to Vienna in 1986 and quickly elevated to be their Czechoslovak expert, even though at the time I didn't speak Czech or Slovak languages, and I didn't really know much about the country. You know, my job took me to Prague and Brno and Bratislava and country you know, cities in Czechoslovakia about three or four times a year. So between 1986 and, say, the fall of communism in 1989, I traveled uh, to Czechoslovakia probably 12 or 15 times, something like that. The story today sort of revolves around Arnold, who was your fixer in Czechoslovakia. You know, I told you just now that I didn't speak much Czech or Slovak. So when I would do my reporting trips in Czechoslovakia, I needed a translator. And 
uh, it always helps to have someone on the ground to arrange your transportation, accommodation, things like that. So uh, to fulfill that need, my company, Business International and later The Economist, hired uh, a stringer. Uh, based in Prague. His name was Arnold. He was an older gentleman, around 60 years old when I was traveling there. I was in my 20s. And it was his job simply to arrange my meetings, to drive me from place to place, to translate and help me translate and understand the meetings. And then, of course, to book hotels and things like that. Uh, You lost contact with Arnold, I think, uh, towards the end of the 80s. And then you last saw him in 1993 or something, I think. When we were living and working in Vienna, there were about 10 of us journalists based in Vienna who had different jobs. Each of us covered a different country. We would all talk among ourselves whether our stringers, you know, guys like Arnold, were in fact uh, agents for the other side or whether they were reporting on us and things like that. Um, obviously, in retrospect, it seems naive to assume that they were not. You know, I mean, it's obvious. You know, they were writing down everything and taking notes and, and all that stuff. Um, but at the time, it just seemed inconceivable that our company would hire somebody who was actively working on the other side. So, you know, we all believed that these guys were uh, were, were were spies, perhaps espionage uh, guys, informants. But we didn't believe that. You know. I, I don't know, maybe we naively assumed that they were also working with our company and they were helping us, et cetera. So, you know, maybe they were, you know, good agents or at least not so, you know, not uh, not so bad uh, variety of this Eastern European agent. Anyway, uh, yeah, I moved up to Prague in 1991. I quit my job at that, at that, at that, you know, in 1990, 91, and moved up to Prague. And then I did run into Arnold one time in 93, just by chance. You know, we were, we were not friends when we were working together, but we were colleagues and friendly. And, you know, we caught up and had a nice chat. And that's it. I never heard of Arnold again. You know, I mean, he just kind of vanished from my map until around, 2014 or 2015 and i was sitting in my apartment googling my old friends and wondering whatever happened to the old gang and and i thought oh geez i haven't heard about arnold in years i wonder if he's still alive he would have been into his 80s by that point what's he doing you know in and um so i i you know typed his name into the search bar and hit the google results and i saw very little on arnold very little uh in fact almost nothing and it was so strange for a person who had lived so much of his life in the media and helping the media. He seemed like a public person at the time, in a sense, and he was certainly well-known among us. So it just seemed weird, a little bit strange. So then I kept clicking down on the search results to the second page, maybe even the third page, and I located a PDF file of a report that was written by the Prague Institute of Military History, and it was entitled Arnold K., Journalist and Collaborator with the Secret Police. And it was an entire 20-page report on his life and all the things that he had done in his professional work as a paid informant for the STB, the Czechoslovak Secret Police. And that's when my blood froze over, basically, sitting there thinking, oh, my God, that guy you know, was up to a lot of stuff that I really didn't know. And, of course, I read through the report, and I learned a lot at that point. And then it dawned on me, of course, I must have my own file. I mean, you know, he was reporting on me regularly at that time. Shortly after reading that report, uh, I hired a Czech student to go to the Ministry of Interior here, to go to the archives, and to go through the, to the process of applying to see my own surveillance file, which I'm certain that I had. And I was told that, you know, Mr. Baker, you don't have a file. 
and I was, you know, completely dumbfounded. And then I've done uh, over the over the years in the intervening years, I did that on, on a couple of occasions. You know, most recently, just two years ago, when I was writing my own book about this period, and I went to the archives again, and I was told again, Mister Baker, you don't have a file. So, I mean, you know, what could I say? I mean, I thought it was crazy that that I, I didn't have one, but they didn't have it, and they didn't have it on file. So I, I just kind of put it out of my mind. And I wrote my book based on my diaries, my notes, my memories, but without the file, you know, I knew there was a lot of shenanigans going on. You know, I knew that I had been the object of uh, some surveillance and I had my suspicions about Arnold, but of course I didn't have anything on paper to prove any of it, but I just, I wrote some good stories for the book about those times. And then somebody reads your book and emails you. This is the most incredible part of the story and it's crazy. You know, I published my book, uh, got some attention here, got some nice TV interviews, magazine and newspaper reviews, was generally pretty well received by the Czech public. I should say that the book called Chas Promien is actually published in Czech language. So, and, and available in Czech and Slovak bookstores. You know, I'm, I'm working on the English, but I haven't, uh, I haven't published that yet. Uh, anyway, so then I sent uh, a copy of the book to one of the researchers at the Military History Institute, in fact, the same researcher who wrote that that uh, report on uh, about Arnold, and um, uh, and I thought nothing of it. I went home. Uh, this was not the last Christmas, but the Christmas before last. I went home to visit my family in the states, and while I was home, I got an email from this, you know, Doctor Tomek. And he wrote, you know, Mr. Baker, thank you so much for your book. I enjoyed reading it. Of course, this made my day. Uh, and then he said, but if you decide to do a second edition, you probably should revise some of the parts of your book. After I read the book, I thought it would be very unusual for a person in your situation, in your position, not to have had a surveillance file. So I took the liberty of searching in the archives on your behalf, and I found out that you actually do have a file. And it's a whopper. So <laughs> it floored me, completely out of the blue, completely and totally unexpected. And when I say I was surprised, I mean, I wasn't surprised because, you know, I didn't know that these things were happening, but I was surprised because I had been told several times beforehand that I simply did not have a file to the point that I actually believed it. So this hit me like a ton of bricks. I can imagine him telling you it's a whopping great file <laughs> i don't know if that was exactly his words but he said it was something like out of a hollywood movie that was what he said actually in the email well hey that's even better that's even better god dear are you sort of like worried about because i presume you you know you think right i've got to i've got to see this file but then are you worried about what you might discover in yeah it? i i had very mixed emotions when i got that email you know, I felt in some way justified for writing my book. I felt like the surveillance techniques were, if anything, even stranger and harder than I had written about or imagined about for my own book. Um, I felt justified as a journalist. I felt kind of weirdly proud that I had had a file. You know, at least they had taken my work and my company seriously enough to engage us on that level. You know, that might sound a little bit strange, but that was one of the emotions that I felt. And then I also felt a little bit of embarrassment for being for popping up in those files, for not realizing, of course, that was the game that was going on. You know, how, how would you not 
absolutely not know that. And then, of course, what might be in the file? You know, I mean, uh, I, uh, I always tried in my reporting trips to Czechoslovakia, you know, to Prague and Bratislava to behave to a certain standard. I didn't want to get caught up in any kind of crazy games. I certainly didn't want to get taped or recorded or, or anything like that. I mean, I knew other guys, other journalists, businessmen who were less cautious, I suppose, than I was. But I really tried to play it down, right down the book. I didn't want to get caught up in any kind of embarrassing thing that might, you know, embarrass me or my company. Um, so I realized that there was probably nothing that weird or incriminating in the file. But you never know what somebody writes about you. I mean, maybe Arnold had written something incriminating about me in order to elevate his status, or somebody else had put something in or something. When there's no real vetting process that goes into the file, you're at the whim of whatever anyone wants to write about you. So, of course, you know, I had concerns about that. Uh, Dr. Tomek enclosed or attached yes. a photo with yes. the news as well. He um, he attached six photos actually to the uh, to the email just to give me a taste of what was in the file because the actual file ran to several hundred pages. In fact, it could have been several thousand pages, but so much of the file had been lost or damaged over the years because I could see an index list in the file of all the all the materials that had been lost over the years. So there was a lot of, of things in there. But I think he wanted to give me a flavor of what it was. You know, I was getting this email was when I was in the States and I was coming back to Prague in about a month's time. So I had a, a, some time to think about it. Um, and two of the photographs really stand out. And one of the photographs is taken by uh, a secret police photographer standing probably from behind a up a wall or a ledge or a hedge, perhaps. And it's of me and Arnold standing in the middle of the street, walking up toward a building. I'm holding a briefcase and we're walking together. We're both wearing suits. It was obviously one of our interview days. Uh, and the date on the photograph was June 29th, 1989. Now, Ian, nothing about that meeting, about that day, about that moment stands out at all. You know, I mean, it might be nice to think that we were delivering secret letters to Havel or something like that, but we're doing nothing like that, I'm sure. We were simply going up to talk to the director of the Czechoslovak Telecommunications Company, which was based in the building that we were walking up to. I know I remember almost nothing from that meeting or that day. Uh, that struck me, you know, like such a an irrelevant, unimportant moment to photograph. Um, and I wondered why. And I found out later why. Uh, and then the second thing that he sent me, a second photograph that really caught my attention, was a, a photograph of a piece of paper in the file. And it was um, it was from a trip that I had taken to Prague in November of 1989, before the fall of the Berlin Wall and before the Velvet Revolution. So uh, right at the beginning of November, November 5th, uh, actually. And uh, the photograph was of a letter that I had written to a woman who I'd met at the hotel that I was staying at. Her name was Gabriella. She appears in my diary. She was from Chicago. She was a traveling American, a solo traveler. And, um, you know, we had hit it off. We had become friends. We had spent some time during those days walking around Prague in that early kind of gray November day. And I was writing a note to say, if she ever comes to Vienna to look me up, that I probably won't, uh, won't, won't see her this evening. And, uh, you know, it was fun and, and good luck. And um, Dr. Tomek sent the photograph of that note that I had left her in that mailbox. And it was just weird. Wow. Wow. Chilling that they were that close to you. 
two things came to my mind. It's that obviously somebody at the hotel was watching me very closely at the reception desk or something, you know, that wasn't a, such a surprise. But the second, second thing that I asked myself was, was Gabrielle working for them? I mean, you know, I mean, was she tied up in this? And it occurred to me that if she had been, then the Czechoslovaks were very, very good. I mean, this was an agent that was just too good to be true somehow. Um, I don't think she was in retrospect. I'm pretty sure she was pretty much what she was telling me that she was. But I do remember from that trip, she was going to Berlin and that would have put her in Berlin right at the fall of the wall. So, maybe, you know, maybe she was on some, you know, secret trip or something. I have no idea. And, and, you know, I've never had any contact with her since. And, you know, I don't know what happened to her. So those two pieces really uh, come, really came, let the file for me come alive. You know, I really felt, you know, that, 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 that what, those guys were watching me and they were watching me very, very closely. Can you describe your first visit to the archive to actually see the contents. Yeah, it was so interesting. You know, of course, after I came back to Prague from receiving that email from Dr. Tomek, um, I emailed him uh, and arranged for a visit. He kindly agreed to show me the archives and, and uh, show me how I could see my own file and my own materials, you know, what I needed to bring to the archive and what I could do and not do once I was in there. And uh, it's in a fairly nondescript building, very close to downtown Prague. I had walked past the building many, many times in the past and never really, you know, could imagine that, you know, my name was on some piece of paper sitting in one of those papers uh, in there. Um, yeah, it looks like a small town library. You go in, you're not allowed to bring, uh, you know, any briefcases or, or overcoats or anything like that, but you are allowed to bring in a camera or a telephone to, to take photographs. And you go to the you go to the desk and you ask the you know the person behind the counter to see this and such material, give her a number, uh, etc. And then they you know a couple minutes later they come with the pile of papers in which you take and sit down at the desk and then just go them go through them one by one. Yeah, that was my first uh, interaction that I had with my own file. But there was a really interesting moment because I was sitting in there and still really wondering: Do I want to see this? Do I not want to see this? you know, a little bit apprehensive about what was inside of all those papers. So I kind of got lost in, in it, in, in my thoughts. And I you know, was just looking out the window. And then all of a sudden I heard uh, Dr. Tomek behind me uh, saying, here, Mark, here is your file. And he plumped this enormous stack of papers on the desk. <laughs> I don't know. I can imagine your nervousness about looking in this just weird you don't you know ian so many things go through your mind i mean what if i discover that close personal friends you know um girlfriends perhaps were were spying on me uh you know uh, co-workers were involved in cahoots with one of these organizations you just never know what you're going to find and you have to ask yourself are you really prepared to learn these things about these people you know um yeah, no, I, 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 I was looking forward to it. I really wanted to see it after I'd kind of psyched myself after I'd kind of psyched myself up for this. Uh, but I was still very apprehensive. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War. Uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. 
So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I mean, other, other people I've spoken to who are aware they've got a file have had the same doubts. And some just haven't wanted to look at the file for fear of what they might find out. They'd rather like let sleeping dogs lie. Um, the, the thing about the file, and uh, that was my next step after I got the papers from Tomek, of course, and and um, and uh, photographs that he had of, of papers that he had given to me on a flash drive. You know, hundreds of pages, like I said, you, you know, even thousands if you count kind of the, the the you know the materials that are kind of related to my to my file. Um, but what the first thing you notice is that just about everybody is hidden behind a code name. You know, there are very few real names used in any of the files, just the very highest people in the uh, in the secret police and some other people who are not related to the STB or not of, not of interest to them. But everyone else, whether you worked for the organization, whether you were a spy, or whether you were just like me, uh, a person of interest or a potential collaboration target or somebody that you had to surveil, you were given a, a code name. So in a sense, there's anonymity built into the into the operation. Now, when, when, when you have a file there, you are allowed to know the identities of the people in your file. So you can make further inquiries and you can find out their identities. Um, but it's your choice. It doesn't actually just leap off the page, you know, that this person was involved in, in your file. So there is that. It's a little bit of a protection. What are your first impressions of what you uh, discover in there? Well, the first thing I had to do was to decipher the language. You know, it's a very dense version of Czech a very specific version of Czech filled with lots and lots of jargon. It was very difficult for me to read. And uh, of course, they used a lot of abbreviations. You know, everybody's, you know, my, the first thing, my first impression was that, oh my God, uh, my code name was Inter, I-N-T-E-R. That was my, that was the name that I am known as. And it took me a while to realize that every time I saw the name enter in a file, that that was that person that they were talking about was me, was actually me. You know, I think probably because I worked for Business International, that it was a short form of my name. You know, they weren't always very creative with these code names, but uh, but just trying to learn the lingo. You know, I'll give you an example. Um, when I first come up on the radar screen, you know, the, one, one one thing that I really learned quickly when I was uh, when I was going through the file is that um, I wasn't just being surveilled. I was being, uh, I was being evaluated as a possible collaboration target. You know, it was something that I hadn't expected and something that kind of floored me. You know, I could, I could have more accepted the fact that, of course, I was a Western journalist. I was visiting uh, Prague. They're going to surveil me. But at some point, they decided to uh, up the ante a little bit and to try to actively recruit me to work for them. And, uh, it took a little while to sink in, but that was, um, but that was, uh, you know, one of my impressions. Um, yeah. So I was going to tell you a sort of an example of some of the abbreviations that they used when they were first 
targeting me as a person of interest, my initials, the initials that they put before my code name in the file are RS. It means something like a potential target or a person of interest. And then around the spring of 1989, I became elevated to what they call an RT, which is really a targeted contact. Uh, so it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a difference in quality, you know, of, of the contact. And once you get designated the way I understand it, once you become designated as an RT in the file, um, then of course it triggers a lot more vetting. It triggers a psychological profile. It triggers, um, active surveillance for long periods of time, simply to ascertain whether I'm not working for Western intelligence, which is something that they never knew all the way to the end, um, whether I was or was not. So yeah, so around in that early time frame and say springtime of 1989, I become I, I go from an RS in the file, so RS enter to RT enter every time my name is mentioned. Does the file indicate when you first sort of appear on their radar as uh, a possible target? Yeah, the first thing, you know, the first thing I had to do was to try to organize these hundreds of pages into something that made logical sense. You know, like I said, it took me a little while to realize that I was actually being targeted and not just being surveilled. Um, so I tried to come up with a kind of logical time frame. And, as, uh, and given the fact that some of the materials are missing from the file, many materials are missing. As near as I can tell, I pop up on their radar screen in August of 1988, at the time that I was attending a Czech language program in the city of Brno in Moravia, Czechoslovakia. Uh, I was there in July and August of of, of 1988. Uh, and that's the first time that my name enter, my code name enter is not mentioned in those files. My real name is used. Um, but there are already dispatches from uh, secret police headquarters in Prague to their counterparts in Brno that this guy, Mark Baker, is going to be at your course. We want me to take a look at him. If, if, you, if he's doing anything you know, that would be of particular interest, we want you to report back on him. In fact, we want you to keep a pretty close eye on him. So that's the time that I first pop up on the radar screen. You, you mentioned psychological profiling. Can you share any any detail as to what what they found there and its uh, <laughs> accuracy? <laughs> oh, it was humiliating, Ian. I mean, you know, just to read these things thirty years later, as uh, and read back about how you must have appeared to people who were evaluating you from a distance when you were twenty five or twenty six years old is quite, uh, is you know, it, it can be quite embarrassing. My psychological profile starts to appear at about the time that I moved from the RS to the RT, like I told you, when I was elevated. And that psychological profile is part of that elevation process. They want to try to evaluate your psyche from a distance to see if there are any points that they can potentially exploit, any personality characteristics or even flaws that they could that you know that they could use to their own ends. Um, with me, as I was reading it, I was just cringing. You know, it was telling me that um, that I was rather insecure, particularly around women, um, that I had some issues about my appearance, that perhaps I wasn't satisfied with my appearance, that, uh, that I was a hard worker, but yet quite lazy in the mornings, you know, um, and that, um, <laughs> and it's crazy. Um, yeah, that's all of us, that. 
Uh, <laughs> well, no, they used it because they thought that I could be approached better in the morning because I would be less careful about making errors. Wow. You know, very, very strange. Like each one of these flaws was was attached to uh, a point that they could exploit. Obviously, this insecurity around women, you know, it sounds horribly embarrassing to even admit this now, but it's that I was very attracted to attractive women, but that actually was not very successful at getting women, you know, and, and somehow they, they knew this. I don't know how or, or why. In fact, the line is, uh, he has an eye for attractive women, but does not get many in practice. So... That's right out of the file. That's harsh. That's harsh, Mark. It's harsh. It's harsh. <laughs> so I think that set the, the, the context in mind for what they had down the road planned for me. Obviously, they were going to find a, you know, an attractive woman who would be presentable in society, as they said, that you know, that would be a requirement, that would be intelligent, that would be funny, I suppose, you know, that kind of thing. And that was going to be my point of weakness. It's kind of nonsense in a way, you know, some of the stuff was me, you know, but some of the stuff was completely not me. Uh, I don't even know where they got it or how they got it. This information, perhaps Arnold contributed. It says in the file that they got these through operative means, meaning that they used it uh, through uh, photography and through uh, recordings, probably recordings of my telephone calls. So, uh, you know, they were building a psychological profile, but at the same time, you know, I don't think they were coming very close to the essence of me. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, you get the impression with some of these files is the people following you feel they have to produce material. So therefore, some of it is perhaps made up because they feel they have to put something in. I mean, when I when I read that part about has an eye for attractive women but does not get many in practice, I mean, I burst out laughing when I read that one. I mean, you know, it's like they had a sense of humor, perhaps. I don't know. How much detail is there about your surveillance? So, Ian, um, at the same time uh, that the psychological profile came about, uh, then they also uh, brought in all the other methods to vet and screen me to make sure that they weren't going to propose cooperation or collaboration with an active member of the other side's intelligence services or whatever. So one of the things that they did, and that's where that photograph of me and Arnold in front of that telecommunications building comes in. So on June 29th, as part of the Operation Inter, as they call it, or AXA Interaction, the interaction, was to surveil me from the moment that I woke up in my hotel room in Prague to basically the moment I went to sleep. And everything that I did during that day was to be watched and recorded for them. Um, and the reason, of course, they were doing that was to make sure that I wasn't working for the CIA or something else. Um, but they also wanted to know that I wasn't cooperating or, um, or meeting with people on their band list or dissidents or people who were affiliated with Charter 77, you know, that's written specifically in the file. Um, so, um, so we have pages and pages, books and books of that one day. You know, Mark Baker woke up at 7.35 a.m. He exited his hotel room. He went to the breakfast uh, uh, area. He picked up a menu. He ate this and such for breakfast. Then he went back to his room. Then he, you know, changed this and that. And then he went to the lobby. He stood there for 10 minutes waiting for this guy to come. And it's not just what I did. But every moment is what I'm wearing. You know, he was wearing a gray suit. He was wearing a 
black shoes. He had a black belt. He was wearing a black. He was carrying a black attaché case. You know, it's all very meticulously written down because they were afraid, of course, that I could change clothes with somebody at some point. Uh, and in those clothes, in that jacket, might be a letter to somebody or something like that that they couldn't see. So it was very important that I was always wearing the same clothes every time they saw me, or if I changed clothes, that I had a good reason to do that. What was in my briefcase, or what briefcase was I carrying? And Arnold, who was driving me around at that time, is described in the same meticulous detail. It's it's very much like what streets we drove, how many meters down one road we turned, you know, we rode before we turned. Of course, that entire meeting with that telecommunications person. Uh, I later uh, remembered, you know, thanks to the surveillance file that we went back to Arnold's apartment later that day. We had lunch at a, a pub not too far from his house. Uh, we eventually left in the evening and drove down to Brno. So, I mean, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of details in there that, frankly, I had never remembered and never would have thought about again the rest of my life if I hadn't had this, you know, this very detailed surveillance report. Is is that the only report you've got in there of your surveillance, That just that one day? That is the one day. That's a pretty standard surveillance, I think. One or two days, depending on how many resources they want to throw at the, at the person. But yes, no, I, I'm cited at different places, you know, that I, you know, they had an informant at the Hotel Forum in, in Prague um, on one evening, and she wrote down some things that I had talked about, you know, so people were watching where I was, the the class in Brno, the director of the class in Brno was also writing, you know, things about me uh, in the file. But yes, that's the only detailed sunup to sundown. Did the file throw any new light on the role of Arnold? The file, the file was so interesting because Arnold uh, was obviously my handler in a sense. You know, he was the secret collaborator that was identified as working with me, and he worked for our company, and and those guys knew that too. Um, but Arnold was not aware of all the plans that they had for me. And it's written quite specifically in the files that Arnold will not be told about this and such operation, will not be told about this and such operation. In fact, for that daily surveillance thing, some of the guys who are watching us do not even know that Arnold is their own man. You know, they identify him as an unknown person or an unknown man, an unknown man of middle age. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit crazy. Uh, I talked to some people who helped me translate the files, and they explained, of course, the role of blocking that was used in the intelligence services. That agents within an, uh, within an agency or cooperative, you know, in, in Arnold's case, collaborators uh, would be blocked off from certain operations, so that if there was one point of compromise, that the entire operation would not be compromised. So Arnold was kept in the dark a lot about me. They're evaluating you as to whether they can use you. Do you have any idea as to what role they had in mind for you or where they, what use you were going to be? Yes. Uh, after going through the, the materials uh, so meticulously such a long time, uh, I started to wonder why all of these materials that didn't seem to be directly involved with me were included in my uh, file, my own file. They were all associated with this Czechoslovak, with this covert, covert Czechoslovak action called uh, OHEN, which means fire in, in Czech. So Operation OHEN. And Operation OHEN was a long-standing operation the Czechoslovak secret police had to try to infiltrate American uh, institutions, American embassies, etc., uh, in 
some parts of Europe and um, primarily, at least in my case, in Austria. So the U.S. Embassy in Vienna was one of their main target objectives. The, the, the file is very clear that since around 1981, the embassy had been identified to be, uh, to be breached, to be penetrated. But yet, uh, by the time 1989 rolled around and I was reading the materials, they had never succeeded in getting into the U.S. Embassy in Vienna. And that was like their holy grail. And uh, it's, it was obvious to me as I was reading through the files, I, you know, I was a journalist. I lived in Vienna. You know, I presumably in their mind, I was an American citizen, presumably in their mind had access to the embassy or at least knew people who were working at the embassy that, uh, that, uh, that I might be a way for them to try to get inside the embassy in some capacity. Yeah, I think that was definitely the goal. So at some point after the evaluation, after the surveillance, are they ready to make an approach to you? In the springtime of 1989, you know, they came up with the with the switching me to the RT, which is that targeted uh, with that targeted thing. Uh, they did the surveillance, uh, the one day surveillance. They took the photographs. They did the psychological evaluation, uh, and then there's a gap in the materials. I mean, in 1989 was a kind of crazy year for me. My, my father passed away that that summer, and I was home in the states for several weeks during that time. And I didn't come back to Europe until September of 1989, just about when the fireworks were starting to get going that year. So, you know, that probably explains the gap in the materials, but the operation seems to have been put on hold from say May, June to, uh, to when it gets really going in November again. So this is the trip to Prague that I told you about at the beginning of the conversation. This would have been from November 5th to November 9th. From the, on those four nights, I was staying at the Hotel Paris or the Hotel Pajish here in Prague. And looking back now over the materials in my file, that was the time when this whole thing was supposed to get going. They seem to be, when I say they, I, I mean the STB, the Czechoslovak Secret Police, they seem to be totally oblivious of the historical events that were going on at the time. I mean, we're talking about basically the same week that the Berlin Wall fell, and we're talking about just a matter of days, 10 days or so before the before the Velvet Revolution begins in Czechoslovakia. According to my file, they don't seem to be at all concerned about those things. They're much more concerned about trying to bring me on board and try to get them, you know, as part of Operation Ohen and to try to get me back to Vienna and to infiltrate the U.S. Embassy. It's just incredible. So the plan was on that first week, I was to stay in Prague uh, to do my thing, to do my reporting, to report back on what was going on. And then Arnold would pick me up at my hotel. You know, that was the same hotel that I had just left, you know, my friend Gabrielle, that little message that popped up, you know, 30 years later in my file, um, picks me up at the, at the, um, at the hotel and we drive down to Bratislava. Now, Arnold doesn't know this, but his friends in the agency have arranged for a Slovak agent named Ina. INA, female agent, who is waiting for us at the hotel that we're going to be staying in that night. And uh, it's very clear, you know, how it's all going to work, that Arnold and I are going to check in at the hotel. Uh, of course, we'll get separate rooms. I will be given the room with the, uh, with the operation machinery in place. I guess they mean uh, machines for listening to the conversation, taking photos or video. Um, and then we would go to dinner 
And then unbeknownst to Arnold, he's completely in the dark about this, then Ina will approach our table and start making small talk, presumably, you know, uh, with us. And uh, Ina and I will hit it off. You know, they're quite convinced of this, probably based on my psychological profile. And, um, you know, at some point we're, we're going to have the night of our lives or something. Now, the operation, according to the file, was never realized. Uh, you know, ne realizvana in Czech. And I don't know why to this, to this day, I, I can't remember the exact details of that evening enough to know whether she came to the table and that we had a nice chat, but nothing really happened or, you know, or maybe the operation itself was called off. I, I don't really remember. I have very sketchy memory of that, of that uh, moment. Um, but I should point out that that was the evening of November 9th and the evening that the Berlin Wall would later fall that same night. So it's just, the timing is just theatrical. I think that's what he meant when he said, this is a Hollywood film. Incredible, incredible. Maybe you just decided to have an early night and she never met you. It could have easily have been. I mean, uh, you know, I told you when I'm traveling on these business trips, I'm, I'm not going to put me or my company in this situation where we could be blackmailed and i really felt like that was the thing so it could easily have been you know she was charming and amusing person we had a couple of beers and i said good night i mean that that's probably how it actually happened mm. it's funny because i've looked in the papers you know that that are part of the file and and ina which is not her real name by the way it's just ina and it's her code name was paid 200 check crowns for presumably for her dinner for her time and uh, the other operatives were paid 400 crowns, and the room itself cost uh, 400 crowns. So they were very meticulous in their bookkeeping, the uh, the STB, probably like the East Germans might have been. So every expense is, is annotated to practically the, the last penny. Yeah, so, I mean, it was never realized. I don't know what would have happened had the Berlin Wall not fallen that night. I mean, you know, would they have tried again or... If the, if, the, if the operation had been called off, and I just don't remember, would they have tried, you know, the next night or tried again, you know, on, an, on, a, on another visit? I have a feeling that they really wanted to make this work somehow. And, uh, you know, I never got the chance to tell them no in person or to be shocked at the, at the offer because obviously there was, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they were dreaming about but there was no way that i was ever going to work with those guys i mean it was just crazy no but i guess they were looking to get some compromising material on you there's a really funny and kind of disturbing um line in the file is that and i don't know whether that was the aim or not you know to get obviously that was the aim but i don't know what was the aim because there's another line in the file that says that that in the best case enter and Ina will hit it off, will like each other, and that eventually Ina will move to Vienna to be with to be with Inter as his partner or his wife. It's just chilling. Chilling. I was wow. going to have a sleeper for a wife. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah. That is Hollywood now. <laughs> How... I, 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 it's scary to think that they really thought and operated on that on that level, you know, because for me, that's beyond the pale, you know, I mean. I've read about people who have discovered that their partner was an informer for the Stasi, for example. Um, 
and had no idea until they opened you know had had a look at their file and 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 worked it worked it out but if you're in that situation in that country and you have no idea the berlin wall is going to fall on the 9th of november how would you have behaved if you were coerced into doing perhaps a little bit of informing to start with it depends on what the end goal was um or what the point of this compromise was was it to embarrass me in front of you know my friends back in vienna or my employer or something like that or was it to plant ina as a sleeper i i think i would have been very embarrassed you know not so much for you know, having a meeting a, a woman in a pub in Bratislava, you know, I wouldn't be embarrassed about that. I would have been embarrassed for being so stupid to put myself in that situation. That would been that would have attached. That would, that's where the shame for me would have attached. But but I think the, the the real thing is that you know you just didn't use your head, you know that kind of thing. Um, if the goal was to I don't know to introduce a new person in my life and hope that we live happily ever after in Vienna and she just reports on me as my wife. I mean, that's, that's a different level of, of, of wrong somehow, I think, you know, in my mind. Absolutely. Does the file give any indication you were under surveillance in Vienna as well? Yes. Uh, they were well aware of my address. Of course they knew where our company was located and our telephone number, but they also had my telephone number and my address in Vienna. Um, there isn't very much about my personal life in Vienna. My friends in Vienna are not mentioned. There's not very much about where I went to have a beer or, you know, hang out. Um, so I have a feeling that they were not as free to operate in Vienna as they were in Prague, you know, where basically everything I did and said was somehow not jotted down. So where does the file go after the 9th of November 1989? What what further entries are are there after that point? Yes, there is one more flurry of papers in my file and they're dated February 1990. By that point, the government has changed in Czechoslovakia, the Berlin Wall has fallen. The immediate future in Central and Eastern Europe is clear. It's toward democracy and the STB was in fact disbanding, you know, or was going was planning on disbanding. So it was uh, simply calling off the operations, uh, reining in Operation Ohen uh, to meet new circumstances. It's filled with this kind of bureaucratic language, but it was pretty clear that they were wrapping things up. So you know, there was obviously no more approach on me, and there's nothing else that uh, you know that appears. You know, I didn't leave Vienna until 1991, so. If they were still interested in me, there would have been paper, but you know there wasn't. I don't think I don't think Ohen as a thing existed after 1989, after the Velvet Revolution. I'm quite surprised they're still pushing bits of paper around, even in February 1990. Well, I the the STB, I believe, disbanded in February of yes, of February of 1990, I believe, March of 1990. Uh, Arnold, uh, in that report that I saw on Google when I was looking for Arnold's name, I saw that on his last pay, I believe, in February of 1990, I think he received 2,000 Czechoslovak crowns, which was a pretty nice little piece of money back then. He got an extra uh, bonus in November of 1989. I hope it had nothing to do with driving me to Bratislava <laughs> to 
put me in the clutches of Ina or anything else. But uh, I think that year was one of his best months. Received something like 3,000 crowns or something on the, in that month. Did they re- still receive pensions, these guys, or, or not? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. I mean, I'm sure that they were taken care of. I mean, you know, we, we see them as, you know, as spies and enemies, but of course they had served their own country in a, in a patriotic way. Many of them did. Yeah. And so I suppose they were given state pensions, you know, to a certain extent. I do know that, that of course, having a, a file and having a file that publicly implicated you in cooperating with the STB was a huge mark against you in your reputation. And that played a, a huge role in keeping people out of business, out of positions, out of government, for better or for worse. You know, But it was a huge stigma that you had cooperated or worked for the, uh, for the secret police. So guys like Arnold in the 1990s were running around trying their hardest to hide this cooperation from anybody burning materials trying to get um, people still in the agency to destroy materials whatever had your name on it you wanted it completely eviscerated mark are you going to use this material in a new book hopefully an english version this time as well yes 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 well you know thank you for asking plan you know my plan was to have this material to be kind of processed and publicized and out there before now you know it's i learned about all of this about one year ago um last year was just a crazy year for personal and professional reasons and uh you know and i did it more or less on the side so now i feel like i'm in a good position to publish stories on my own blog about what happened and so probably around the time that this episode appears on your podcast then i will start to put stories out on my own blog with the photographs and, and, and stuff like that. And then uh, I will eventually use that material to recast my book for an English edition. So hopefully if all goes well, you know, I can't make promises, but I would really like to have that English version of the book available for readers sometime by the end of this year, 2023, or maybe the beginning of next, but I will always publish updates to the story on my blog so you you can see it there. Don't forget to check out the links to Mark's blog where there's lots of photos and extra information. The link is in the episode notes. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information